1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Episode 110 of our Civil War Podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Last week, we looked at the successful Union attack on Roanoke Island, North Carolina, in early February 1862. The Battle of Roanoke Island was a major federal victory, won at surprisingly little cost the Union force sustained little more than 250 casualties, while over 2,000 Confederates were taken prisoner. But the real significance of the victory was that with Roanoke Island securely in their hands, the Federals had the opportunity to greatly expand their foothold in coastal Carolina.
1: By moving up the Neuse River from Pamlico Sound, the Burnside Expedition could now seize New Bern. New Bern was important not only because it was North Carolina's second largest city, but also because from New Bern, the Atlantic and North Carolina Railroad ran west for about 60 miles to a vital junction at Goldsboro. At Goldsboro, the line intersected the strategic Wilmington and Weldon Railroad, which carried supplies north to the main Confederate Army in Virginia. If the Federals could capture New Bern and then move west and cut the Wilmington and Weldon Railroad, it would not only throw the entire defenses of North Carolina into confusion, but it would also have a significant impact on the supply situation of the rebel army up in Virginia.
0: So now that Roanoke Island was securely in federal possession, Burnside could move against the North Carolina mainland. But first, it would probably be best if the Confederates' ragtag mosquito fleet of gunboats were destroyed. This small fleet had expended all of its ammunition during the naval battles, such as it was, off Roanoke Island on February 8th, and then the rebel gunboats had withdrawn to Elizabeth City, which lay 12 miles up the Pasquotank River from Albemarle Sound. Elizabeth City was connected with Norfolk to the north by the Dismal Swamp Canal.
1: The Confederate naval commander, Commodore William F. Lynch, found that Elizabeth City was defended by only a handful of militia and a battery of guns at Cobb's Point. Lynch considered the little fort at Cobb's Point a, quote, wretchedly constructed affair, end quote and his opinion of the place wasn't enhanced when he was told there were only enough trained men to operate two of the fort's four cannon. Finding little ammunition for his gunboats at Elizabeth city, Lynch decided he would head back out and assist the defenders of Roanoke Island in whatever way he could, but as he steamed back down the river, he learned that the island had fallen, and so Lynch reversed course and made preparations to defend Elizabeth city.
0: Shortly after daylight on February 10th, Confederate lookouts reported enemy ships coming up the river. Lynch expected the Yankee gunboats would stand off and bombard the rebels' little fort, but instead the Federal ships charged straight up the river and engaged the fort and the Confederate vessels from close range. At that, the local militia fled, the fort was overwhelmed in about an hour's time, and Lynch's Mosquito fleet was destroyed. To cap off the debacle, one of the rebel gunboats tried to escape up Dismal Swamp Canal, but the crew discovered that their ship was about two inches too wide to pass through the waterway, so they scuttled and burned it.
1: Most of the residents of Elizabeth City evacuated the place, taking the time before they left to burn the county courthouse and about two blocks worth of houses and businesses, apparently to spite the Yankees. But they needn't have bothered... On February 12th, the Federals landed, but stayed only a few hours before departing. About a week and a half later, several of the Federal gunboats steamed up the Wan River toward the village of Winton. Word had reached the Federals that the place was home to several hundred Unionists, but in actuality, several hundred Confederate soldiers had hidden themselves and two cannon ashore and laid an ambush for the gunboats at Winton. But just as the first gunboat was approaching the dock, the rebels were spotted, and the Yankees veered away. After exchanging fire with the Confederate artillery, the vessels retired downriver for the night, but they returned the next day. They found that the rebels had disappeared. The Federals landed and ransacked Witten, then torched the place. According to Michael C. Hardy in his book, North Carolina in the Civil War, This was the first time a civilian town had been burned by the Federals during the war.
0: Okay. Well, at any rate, that same day, February 20th, Burnside paroled the Confederate prisoners captured at Roanoke. Steamers took them to Elizabeth City, where they disembarked. We haven't really explained it on the podcast before, but during the Civil War, when a captured soldier was paroled, that meant he was released after he signed a promise not to take up arms again until exchanged. The paroled soldier often went to a camp or even went home while he waited to be exchanged. Only after he'd been exchanged could he take up arms again and to be exchanged just meant that when an equal number of enemy soldiers had been captured and paroled, each side set up an exchange of prisoners, which obviously usually just happened on paper, and thus each former prisoner of war who had been paroled and exchanged was considered free to take up arms again.
1: Meanwhile, after the fall of Roanoke and the other subsequent federal incursions, the Confederates at New Bern prepared for the inevitable attack on the city. The rebels situated a line of defensive works about six miles below New Bern on a narrow stretch of ground between the Neuse River and a swamp. The line was manned by a force of 4,500 Green North Carolinians under the command of Brigadier General Lawrence O'Brien Branch. Branch's command consisted of seven infantry regiments, two dismounted cavalry companies, and about a dozen or so guns. The Confederate left was anchored on the noose where an earthen fort, Fort Thompson, had been constructed. The fort boasted thirteen guns, ten of which were in place to cover the river, leaving only three to cover the land approaches. The installation was apparently nothing to boast about. Since a Confederate officer complained about, quote, the miserable manner in which our works were constructed, Major Thompson, who has failed in every work he has ever undertaken, made the greatest failure of all in the construction of those works. They are a disgrace to any engineer, end quote.
0: From Fort Thompson, the rebel line stretched westwards for about a mile to the Atlantic and North Carolina Railroad. The defensive works were originally supposed to continue across the tracks to a dense swamp near Bryce's Creek, but because his force wasn't adequate to cover that entire distance, Branch found it necessary to shorten his lines. Even after readjusting his lines, though, there was still a gap of about 150 yards in the defenses, near a Brickyard along the railroad. From left to right, the Confederate line was held by the 37th North Carolina, then the 7th North Carolina, the 35th North Carolina, and past the railroad was the 24th North Carolina, supported by the two dismounted cavalry companies. For some reason, at the most vulnerable point in his line, at the brickyard beside the rail line, Branch had posted a battalion of poorly armed militia who had only been in service for two weeks. And then besides those units manning the front line, Branch held the 33rd North Carolina in reserve.
1: As early as February 26th, Burnside had ordered most of the Federal force on Roanoke Island to prepare for the assault on New Bern, but it wasn't until March 11th that the expedition set sail. Burnside set sail with 11,000 men, and there were also 13 warships, led by Commander Stephen Rowan, who was the ranking naval officer after Goldsboro was recalled to Hampton Roads, to help deal with the crisis caused by the appearance of the CSS Virginia. On the afternoon of Wednesday, March 12th the Federal Flotilla entered the Neuse River, which at its mouth is an estuary 12 miles wide. The river was so broad and calm that one Rhode Island soldier said he was reminded, quote, of our summer steamers with excursionists, end quote. And indeed, with the rebels' mosquito fleet already destroyed, the Union ships had nothing to worry about, and by nine o'clock that night, they had anchored off the mouth of Slocum Creek, about fourteen miles below New Bern. The next day, Thursday, March 13th, the Federals landed unopposed, since the Confederates were expecting the main attack would come by water, which explains why ten of Fort Thompson's thirteen guns had been sighted to cover the noose.
0: Heavy rains that afternoon turned the Federal soldiers' journey north into a miserable mud march. Burnside's men continued their slow advance until they were within two miles of the Confederate defensive line, and there they bivouacked for the night. The rain was still coming down in torrents, and one of the consequences of the weather and the poor condition of the road was that the Federals had left their artillery behind, except for just a few light howitzers. All of the infantry's reserve ammunition had also been left behind, so on Friday morning the Yankee soldiers would go into battle with just the 40 rounds they carried in their cartridge boxes.
1: Despite the difficulties of the march on the previous day, on Friday morning the 13th, Burnside was ready to assault the rebel line that stood between his force and New Bern. By 7 a.m. the Yankees were advancing. Burnside had divided his force into three columns under his three brigadiers from the Roanoke Island fight, Foster, Reno, and Park. Foster commanded the column on the right, between the river and the railroad, while Reno was on the left of the railroad, over toward the creek and swamp, and then Park was in reserve, ready to assist either assault column. Foster on the federal right sent in his men before Reno on the left was in position, and his attack soon stalled. The Confederate infantry in their entrenchments opened a heavy fire on the advancing Yankees, and the three rebel guns in Fort Thompson that covered the land approaches sent shells screaming into the blue-clad ranks. But the Southerners also received a helping hand from an unexpected source, the Federal gunboats that had steamed up the noose.
0: Many of the shells from the Federal gunboats overshot the rebel fort and landed amongst the Union soldiers assaulting the Confederate defensive line. Commander Rowan was fully aware that he was endangering the lives of soldiers in his own army, but he nevertheless ordered his gunboats to keep up the heavy fire. By way of explanation, he later wrote to Goldsboro, saying, quote, I commenced throwing shells in shore, and notwithstanding the risk, I determined to continue till the General sent me word to stop. I know the persuasive effort of a nine-inch shell and thought it better to kill a Union man or two than to lose the effect of that persuasion, Needless to say, Rowan's explanation was little comfort to those Federal soldiers ashore who were hit by friendly fire from their own Navy.
1: Under severe fire from both the Confederate defenders and the Union gunboats, and with his men rapidly running out of ammunition, Foster's attack on the Federal right came to a standstill. On the federal left, Reno was also encountering difficulties, but he soon discovered the gap in the rebel line at the brickworks. Seizing the opportunity, Reno personally led four companies of the 21st Massachusetts through the opening and in a charge across the railroad against the flank of the enemy militia. And upon seeing the Yankees appear on their flank, the militia, not surprisingly, were seized by panic and retreated in some haste and disorder. The flight of the panicked militiamen exposed the right flank of the 35th North Carolina. The 35th's colonel saw the danger and knew he needed to counter the threat, but according to another Confederate officer, the hapless colonel, quote, failed to form his men and left the field in confusion, end quote.
0: Reno was quick to order up reinforcements to exploit the break in the rebel line, But at the same time, Branch ordered up his reserves, the 33rd North Carolina, to support the exposed 26th North Carolina and to seal up the gaping hole in the defensive line. The Confederate reserves managed to shore up the position held by the embattled 26th, but they were unable to do anything about the hole in the line at the brickyard. It was now after 11 a.m., and the battle had been raging for three hours. The right and left of the Confederate line were still intact, but the center of the line remained seriously endangered.
1: Word of the gap in the Rebel defensive line worked its way back to Park, whose brigade was the Federal Reserve, and he decided to use his men to exploit the opportunity. Park soon had his fresh troops sweeping through the hole in the center of the Confederate line. The hard-charging Yankees struck the 7th North Carolina squarely on its right flank. Observing this successful assault by Park's men, Foster ordered his brigade to charge, and in this way the entire Confederate left, between the river and the railroad, gave way. Branch saw that the Federals had broken his line, and since he had already committed his reserves, he had no way of stopping the disaster that was unfolding, so he ordered a retreat across the Trent River Bridge and back into New Bern. While the regiments on the left managed to retreat across the bridge and reach the city, the two regiments of the rebel right didn't receive the word to withdraw, and so many of them were captured. Some managed to escape to the west, across Bryce's Creek and through the swamp, though.
0: Once the rebels who had managed to cross the Trent River Bridge reached safety, they set fire to the bridge, which had already been prepared for destruction, and this halted the advance of Foster's Brigade, which had been in hot pursuit of the retreating Confederates. The Federal gunboats, however, had managed to pass through the obstructions in the noose, and Rowan's flagship, the Delaware, lobbed a few shells in the direction of the railroad depot before tying up alongside a wharf.
1: By that time, the Confederates, and also much of the local population, were abandoning New Bern. Ranch realized that it would be impossible for him to try to hold the city, so he ordered the retreat to continue. As the rebel soldiers continued their retreat out of New Bern, and a good portion of the populace fled, fires broke out in some parts of the city. From statements by Branch and the adjutant of the 27th North Carolina, it seems the fires were set by retreating Confederate soldiers who were acting without orders. Fortunately, the fires did little damage before they were contained.
0: During the Battle for New Bern, the Confederates lost 64 men killed, 101 wounded, and 413 missing, of which Branch reckoned that 200 ended up prisoners and the rest simply went home. The Federals lost 90 killed and 380 wounded.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
1: The people of eastern North Carolina were angry and alarmed by the relatively easy federal conquest of the second largest city in the Tar Heel State. Other settlements along the coast and up the coastal rivers clamored for protection from further Yankee incursions. And then the Union victory also led officials in Richmond to reevaluate their previous negligence with regard to North Carolina's defenses. A week after New Bern's fall, Robert E. Lee warned Jefferson Davis that another such disaster in North Carolina would be ruinous to the Southern cause. And so, to prevent a federal push into the interior of the state, Confederate troops were rushed from Virginia to North Carolina. There was also a wholesale change in officers holding vital commands in the state.
0: The Confederates feared that, with New Bern in their possession, the Yankees would move inland to threaten the vital rail junction at Goldsboro, or even launch an even bolder thrust to push west across the state, link up with the Union force advancing east from Tennessee, and in that way divide the Upper Confederacy.
1: But rather than Goldsboro, Burnside had fixed Fort Macon as his next target. Fort Macon, located on Bogue Banks, guarded Beaufort Inlet the only entrance through the outer banks still not in federal hands. And then, not only did the fort guard the water approach to the port of Beaufort, but it also protected Moorhead City, the terminus of the Atlantic and North Carolina Railroad. For all those reasons, Fort Macon was an attractive target for Burnside. If he could neutralize the fort, he could free himself from reliance on storm-battered Hatteras Island as a base, and the Navy would also benefit because the North Atlantic Blockading Squadron could use the harbor as a secure coaling station, thus allowing for a more effective blockade of Wilmington. Plus, Burnside felt that this threat to his rear had to be taken care of before he could contemplate any move on Goldsboro.
0: Burnside selected Park and his brigade for the job of taking Fort Macon, and on March nineteenth, the 4th Rhode Island and 8th Connecticut began embarking on steamers while the 5th Rhode Island took a more arduous route, marching up the rail line. The two forces linked up at Havelock, where Park rebuilt the railroad bridge, which had been destroyed by the Confederates, and then he continued his march and reached Carolina City on March 22nd. From there, he sent a surrender demand to the officer-in-command of Fort Macon, Colonel Moses White. White declined, and so Park began to prepare for siege operations.
1: Park steadily ferried men out to Bogue Banks and set up positions to besiege the fort, and Confederate efforts to dislodge the Federals were unsuccessful. It took Park a month to get everything ready, but then on April 25th, the big Union siege guns, as well as gunboats just offshore, all opened fire. At first, the defenders made a good showing of themselves, forcing the Federal gunboats to leave the fight and pounding the land batteries but accurate fire from those Federal land batteries kept pounding the fort, and gradually the defenders' fire slackened as they were forced to abandon their guns and seek cover. By four o'clock that afternoon, most of the rebel guns had fallen silent. The decision was made to surrender, and at half-past four, the garrison raised a white flag.
0: With the capture of Fort Macon, Burnside felt free to push on into the interior of North Carolina, to Goldsboro, and perhaps even to Raleigh. But first, he needed more men and supplies. Specifically, he needed more cavalry, which the expedition had been in chronically short supply of, and he also needed wagons, and plenty of them, to keep his army supplied as it advanced inland. But events up in Virginia would soon throw a wrench into Burnside's plans. In late June, just as he was preparing to start his move on Goldsboro, Burnside was startled to receive an order from Washington, from the president, in fact, telling him, quote, I think you had better go with any reinforcements you can spare to General McClellan.
1: That summer, McClellan had finally launched his Peninsula campaign. And after reaching the very gates of Richmond, he had managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory as he was hammered back by Robert E. Lee during the seven days battles. And so Lincoln's message was telling Burnside to go to McClellan's aid. And so on July 6th, Burnside and 7,000 of his men sailed from North Carolina for Virginia. A force of about 8,000 Federals remained in eastern North Carolina, but with Burnside's departure, The air had gone out of the Union offensive there. Burnside's successes, coupled with the earlier seizure of Port Royal Sound in South Carolina, and in April 1862, the bombardment and reduction of Fort Pulaski at the mouth of the Savannah River in Georgia, meant that federal land and naval forces now controlled virtually all of the South Atlantic coastline, except for Charleston Harbor, South Carolina, and Wilmington on the estuary of North Carolina's Cape Fear River. With those two places being the only major Atlantic ports that remained open to blockade runners, the Union naval squadrons could now focus on intercepting shipping to and from just those ports. But because Abraham Lincoln ordered Burnside and 7,000 men to go to McClellan's aid in Virginia, where they accomplished little, by the way, But because of Burnside's departure from North Carolina, the strategic consequences of his expedition were actually quite limited. There were barely enough federal soldiers left in eastern North Carolina to garrison the coastal enclaves that had been seized. And so obviously the original plan to drive the 60 miles inland from New Bern to cut the vital Confederate rail junction at Goldsboro was abandoned. But while the Federals may have failed to grasp a golden strategic opportunity to make more of their successes in coastal North Carolina in the first half of 1862, Ambrose Burnside had profited handsomely from the experience. In recognition of his victories, he was promoted to Major General, and if you've read ahead in the story, you know he eventually rises to command of the Army of the Potomac in November of 1862.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Civil War in North Carolina by John G. Barrett.
1: Barrett's book, from the University of North Carolina Press, does a really excellent job of surveying the entire war in North Carolina, and also the secession crisis as it played out in the Tar Heel State. So, if you're interested in learning a bit more about the scope of the Civil War, as it played out in North Carolina, then we can recommend you pick up this book, which you can find with all of our other book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website at www.civilwarpodcast.org.
0: And then, just a reminder that there won't be a new episode next week, but when we return, we'll be starting on the Battle of Shiloh.
1: And, as we said last week, at that time, we'll not only be starting a new topic... But we'll also be starting a new schedule of when we release shows, since we'll be switching things up and releasing a new episode every other week. We're still planning on releasing members' episodes around the 10th and 20th of every month, however, so that won't change. In fact, we'll be releasing the 7th members' episode this Tuesday. And with regard to that, we have several new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank this week. Simon, Rodney, and John. So thanks, guys.
0: If you listen to the podcast on iTunes, please consider leaving us a review, since that helps other people find the show on iTunes. And then if you'd like to follow us on social media, don't forget you can find us on Facebook and also on Twitter. There are handy links to both on the podcast website.
1: All right. And with that, we'll say thank you to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, a history podcast. We'll be back in two weeks and start with the Battle of Shiloh, so Tracy and I hope you'll join us again for that. But until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye.
1: you can find with all of our other book recommendations. If you head over to the podcast website at www.civilwarpodcast.org.
0: And then just a reminder that there won't be a new episode next week, but when we, re- but, but the
1: take seven. <laughs> dun, dun.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. <laughs> Dun-dun-dun!
1: Let's try again.